Hello and welcome to the Majlis Podcast Radio Free Radio Liberties Current Affairs Talk Show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Europe Radio Liberties Media Manager here in Washington DC. The other day I saw an image of a man on a horse visibly carrying Vladimir Putin's portrait in his support. The picture was taken in Kyrgyzstan. Also, we have seen reports that people are visibly putting up the Z sign on their cars and getting fined for this action in more than one countries in Central Asia as we know the Z sign become a symbol of Russian aggression in Ukraine. At the same time, a growing number of people are coming to the streets protesting against Russia's war in Ukraine in collecting aid for people in Ukraine on a scale that that's unprecedented. As Russia continues the aggression, the divide among people is emerging in numerous forms and shapes in the day-to-day life of Central Asians and their reliance on Russian media is not helping. In this episode of the Majlis podcast, we are here to weigh in to how Russia's war in Ukraine is causing rifts within societies, in some cases within families in Central Asia and its possible implications going forward. To discuss all these, I'm joined by Dr. Asel Dulet Kaldiva, senior lecturer at the OC Academy in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, Dr. Asel Tutumlu, lecturer at the Department of International Relations in Political Science at the Near East University in Nicosia. Dr. Tutumlu is originally from Kazakhstan. Kiromon Bekoyova, a senior journalist at Radio Free Radio Liberty's Tajik service, locally known as Rodio Ozodi, and Bruce Panier, a longtime Central Asia analyst who is joining us from Prague today. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us on this very important conversation. So, so it is our third episode on the impact of Russia's war in Ukraine on Central Asia. Just to recap, in the previous shows, we discussed the political economic impact of the war to the region, the way in which it is going to affect Central Asia's migrant workers in Russia, whose income is a really lifeline for millions of people in our region. We also discussed how Central Asia is reacting to this with growing number of protests against the war and aids being collected for Ukraine and authorities trying to strike a balance on how to navigate the public reaction and their dependency on Russia. So our topic today is another crucial element in this conversation and was brought up by Asel Dolet Kaldiva last week in our show. So why not you uh, kick off uh, the conversation, Asel? Uh, with that, we will expand the debate uh, to other countries. Sure. I thought that it would be critical to raise this topic because we see uh, new divisions arising in our societies and accentuations of some old existing lines of polarization among people. And these lines of polarization and divisions are getting accentuated because we are all exposed to the informational war, right? Mm -hmm. And um, while everybody is agreeing that Ukraine is winning the informational war on their other end, uh, here I would say that Russia is winning the informational war when it comes to uh, Central Asia. So uh, what do I have in mind by saying mm, that? Yeah. There is a, a large number of people who can be put in the Putinist camp, mm. who actively support the Russian leader and its aggression against Ukraine. But there is even a larger proportion of people who are uh, apolitical and they don't know how to relate to this war. They know Russia, they know Ukraine, but not to the extent possible to in order to, to discuss the events. And then they prefer kind of to abstain from political debates. And there is a minority in societies who have negative views of the war, and they show it either through protesting or donating to Ukraine or debating in social media, assigning petitions and so on and so forth. 
So um, we have the situation where really kind of there is an informational war going on, not only on social media, but also now taking place more and more in public spaces, but also at work and uh, in families. Basically, <laughs> yes, generations within families splitting on this issue. Can you can you give right it, now? Can can you yeah. Asal, Can you kind of help us to visualize that how it looks like and on the family level? I mean, this division. Yeah. With, with some examples. I'm just coming. Um, so it's difficult for the moment to say whether these lines of divisions they follow age ethnicity, urban-rural divide, mm. um, there is certainly migration experience which is adding to that. But for, for the moment what uh, we can observe uh, with certainty uh, are two things, for example. So those who are protesting against the war are mainly young people, are like urban students or professional youth. But we also have seen that people who protested for the war, supporting Putin, were mainly senior ethnic Russians. Hmm. There were also some ethnic Kyrgyz, but they, they were, it was the majority ethnic Russians. What I'm trying to say is that it's uh, going beyond the clash of opinions, hmm. uh, something that is natural in any um, society which is globalized and hmm. uh, with the internet penetration. Hmm. But this clash of opinions are now spilling into the public contestations, hmm. as I mentioned, in the public space and family and at work. So a couple of uh, examples. Uh, there was recently a well-known activist, mm. a civil activist, human rights defender, who wrote on her Facebook page that she was not let in into a public bus running in the city center of Bishkek mm. because the driver of that public bus recognized her as protesting against Putin and he didn't let her in <laughs> because he was for Putin. If it was a, a private taxi, okay, understandable, but it's a public transportation and it's a, it's a public space. And uh, But we see already how this kind of personal perceptions, individual opinions are influencing who gets into the public space mm. and who doesn't. Uh, the other example is that there, there was supposed to be a protest of a Kyrgyz diaspora mm. in Moscow. I didn't follow today whether it took place or not, but it was going to happen today. And this spurred a huge contestations on social media. So Kyrgyz citizens here in Kyrgyzstan saying that these people should be stripped of Kyrgyz citizenship Ooh. and uh, they should be staying in Russia and claiming only Russian citizenship. So there's already this kind of debate who belongs to then Kyrgyzstan, who doesn't belong, who is ought to be a citizen and who is not a proper citizen. And this is potentially can be dangerous for behavior in the public space. Wow. That's very, very striking. You know, this division, as you were talking about, Asel, it is obviously affecting and obviously is seen on so many levels in so many ways. One is obviously, as you were talking about, the informational war. The other thing is even more important element is ways in which this division is translating into action. Piroman, earlier uh, we were talking about this and you had a long reporting on something related to this. So describe us, please, how people are discussing this issue in your country, Tajikistan. Regarding the Tajik situation, I could not say uh, the same. I mean, in details and not so dramatic like Kyrgyzstan, but mm. I see the Tajik uh, 
polarization, the society's polarization on uh, our social media. You understand that uh, there are a very limited amount of independent media in Tajikistan who are now covering these uh, issues and we, you could find more in social media like Facebook. And uh, it was one main issue that I was uh, surprised from the first days of the war that it surprised me that among people who are supportive of war in Ukraine, people who we usually call intelligentsia, mm. uh, the people who we think that they are influential and they are very respectful people and um, it is a matter of at least surprise for us. But uh, at the same time, one small point that when we decided to call them to participate in our program mm. and stand um, in opposite side of our other guests mm. who are absolutely supporting Ukraine and uh, condemn the war, they were not able to do so. So my mathematics is very primitive. Three people who were supportive of war in Tajikistan mm. couldn't uh, come to our program and join us and uh, openly say their position on behalf of young uh, lady, a filmmaker, who was openly first discussing and then arguing and then was annoyed with all this rhetoric. So we have the same situation with Tajikistan. There are a lot of people who are supportive, but at the same time, uh, you could find a lot of people who are absolutely opposite. And they, uh, like uh, this uh, lady, her name is Anissa Sobri, she is a very well-known filmmaker. She says that one uh, of her big concerns is that after Ukraine or maybe other regions uh, next could be Central Asia and why our people don't think about it. Hmm. Very, very interesting. That kind of brings me to Kazakhstan. We have already seen number of Russian politicians in recent days and months coming out and talking about, about Kazakhstan in a way that they, they used to talk about Ukraine in the past in terms of the statehood, in terms of the hist- reference to the historic Russian land. So Kazakhstan, Asel Tutumlo, you know, as I said, it, it's a kind of special case with large Russian population there. So how is this conversation taking place in your country, the conversation about the Ukraine-Russian conflict? What people are talking about? What kind of signs you see in reference to what Asel and Khraman was talking about? I actually would like to also support the stories. Uh, we have the same, very same divisions. And I think it is important to also separate the ideological component with the kind of economics of this ideological divide as well. When we look at the ideological component, we can see that families, society in general is split between two very different, let's say, understanding of what is truth and right. So on the one hand, you have usually an older generation that feels that they belong to something bigger, greater, um, not necessarily the greater Russia, but a kind of, um, since the enemy is NATO, they they feel kind of an attachment to the the Soviet Union, or they feel that they need to support a leader who can potentially fend off the NATO, uh, the perceived NATO aggression. And so they have this uh, very strong emotional attachment to the idea of we, we, the the post the kind of the, the we are against the west and in that sense their idea of we is very much rooted in specific understanding of history a specific understanding of what the world war ii was about the nazi atrocities the idea of genocide and and all of this is actually used in the russian uh, official storyline uh, all these kind of code words and language is given to them to create a very comprehensive picture And on the other hand, you have people who refuse to think like this, to belong to this idea of we, 
They are usually the protesters that we see on the streets, particularly protesting against the Russian aggression in Ukraine. They are young. They operate from this idea of I. It's my life, I think. They have usually liberal values, which celebrate idea of individual autonomy, the idea of reason, the idea of freedom. And uh, for them, it's a war against their future. It's no longer rooted in the past. It's it's the conflict that potentially can undermine not only the present, and we can we have seen the economic impact, but also on on their future as people who mm. are capable of creating, participating actively the life that they would like to to establish. And I think in that sense, these are these very radical conceptual frames that are rooted deeply in the way we understand ourselves, too. Yeah. But also, Asel, uh, you know, in Kazakhstan's case, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, the way people talk about this, yes, there's an economic factor into that, but also there's an ethnic factor when it comes to Kazakhstan. There's a large size population uh, of ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan. And then also Kazakhstan is a big country. You have this countryside dimension and the city side dimension. They, they also might differ from each other, the way they interpret this. Cannot really also generalize the Russian population in Kazakhstan as a kind of a fifth column that can potentially support uh, Putin's aggression. There is a lot of variation within that particular community. And so that's why what I can say is that in my understanding, the divide is not really about along the ethnic lines, but along the generational lines. And I think that particular division is much stronger than the ethnic division. Um, we have seen also in the protests uh, against Ukraine and I totally second Asel's uh, impression that most of the participants that came to the protest, not most, but many of them were ethnic Russians who basically carried the, the slogan saying, Vladimir Vladimirovich, we don't need to be saved. So this is, this is an understanding that we all want to live in countries that and to have the lives not necessarily determined by someone else, but have the freedom to determine the lives that we would like to construct. And I think that lens is much more productive than assuming that ethnic divisions uh, potentially can lead to certain political allegiances. Mm. Okay, uh, we will get to some of the points that you have been raising. Bruce, uh, I guess Turkmenistan is again out of the picture in this conversation because of the nature of the country, and uh, as we know it. How is Uzbekistan factors in? Last week we were talking about this. On on one hand, you see some intellectuals talking about this and taking stance on Ukraine's side, even as far as going to the Ukrainian embassy and uh, having a meeting with the ambassador. And on the other hand, authorities are taking a tougher stance, even trying to dictate how the local media covers or calls this crisis. How do you see the discussion from this perspective in these two countries? You know, Turkmenistan, there is no discussion. Um, yeah, I think you, you said it well that it just it doesn't even make the news. You know, let's face it, it's not even on state media. So um, there might be people in Ukraine who have only the, the vaguest idea that there's some problem going on at the moment. Uzbekistan's a little different. If for no other reason, there's so many migrant laborers that are calling home all the time that they must have one. Unfortunately, it's impossible to do any good survey work in, in Uzbekistan on a topic like this, for sure. You're right. The authorities have told media to be real careful about what they say about this. They're trying to be neutral all the time. I mean, I know our Uzbek service has spoken to a couple of people who are willing to say that they were against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, it's really hard to, to judge how much 
that is the opinion of, of how many people in Uzbekistan at the moment, because the government really doesn't want to have to say anything about what's happening out there at all, or at least as little as possible. And so it's just tough to figure out what the public opinion is in the country. I would imagine what we've heard being the case in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan is probably also the case in Uzbekistan. You know, the one thing that I would mention that's probably worth considering anyway in this conversation is, you know, we heard SLD and, and uh, Bishkek had mentioned that there was migrant workers, you know, that were coming and they were one of the groups too. And, and migrant workers in Russia have their own individual experiences. We see most yeah, of the negative yeah. problems that have happened, but it would be, that would be a curious group to find out. Are, are the migrant laborers who spent time there and had their opinions about Russia shaped from their time there, are they for this or are they against this? And, you know, again, unfortunately with the, it's hard to gauge because media reports about migrant laborers in Russia are all, are usually the tragedies and the bad things that happen. Yeah. So you would think that they would be unhappy with Russia doing this, but it's hard to, like I said, just hard to gauge. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, yeah. Muhammad, I actually, I'm sorry yeah. to cut you, but yeah. I actually have focus groups uh, mm-hmm. conducted with uh, labor migrants mm-hmm. on uh, their attitude towards Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, though prior to the war. Okay. So I don't know how they would, uh, the attitude would change now with the war, but actually, it was amazing that hmm. uh, the majority of people that we interviewed during the focus groups, they had quite positive experiences in Russia. Of course, uh, there are individual stories, individual complications and hardships and uh, sometimes tragedies. But in uh, overall, migrants actually have experienced a very strong state and straight uh, state support in Russia. So uh, they mentioned welfare programs that they could access to medicine, they could access to, they could send their children to free schooling and uh, education, and that uh, some even women would access their maternity capital, you know. And this, all these things would contrast, extremely contrast with the Kyrgyz lack of welfare state. You know, in compared to the Kyrgyz um, perceived uh, weakness of the state, the migrants would cherish and admire how the Russian economy, the growth of the Russian economy and the capacity of the Russian state. So actually, I think um, this migration experience and the identity shifts that are happening uh, within the, the migrant communities probably also make up for their pro-Putin support. Because uh, they see Russia as a space that welcomes them. They, there is no restriction of movement. Kyrgyz migrants can go to Russia whenever they want. Some were metaphorically referring to this as going to a shop to buy bread. That much uh, the movement is eased between Kyrgyzstan and Russia. And this plays really a lot in terms of uh, identity transformations and also uh, changing people's ad- uh, attitudes positively towards Russia as a country, opening its borders and allowing a lot of people to flexibly move mm-hmm. between the borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would imagine this would be the people who would now support actually Putin. Interesting, interesting dynamic there. In fact, the cause is also important. When earlier we were talking about this, uh, the divisions, the, the war is leading to among the societies in Central Asia. The, the other day, I was also talking to a Turkmen citizen who currently live in Turkey. Um, I can't believe how difficult the discussion was, um, even though the guy is in Turkey and has access to many information channels. It appeared that when it comes to the this crisis, Russian media seemed to be his only source of information. I couldn't believe he his version of the story. So I ended up getting lectured instead that I should open my own eyes. 
when it comes to what's happening in Ukraine. So we couldn't uh, even agree on basic facts on the ground. So I just I said, okay, my conclusion was that uh, no more political talk with this person anymore, especially on Ukraine. So I I know the the guy is smart, but the way this thing is interpreted through Russian channel is also so polarizing. And so what is what is causing all this in the societies you monitor? How challenging can it get? Like the type of examples earlier, Asal, you were uh, giving us, how challenging it can get as the war continues in uh, Ukraine and where this discussion might lead us going forward. So we will continue the conversation talking about this and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the Bajlis podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Asal Dulat Kaldiba, senior lecturer at the OC Academy in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, Dr. Asal Tutumlu, lecturer at the uh, Department of International Relations and Political Science at the Near East University in uh, Nicosia, Hiromon uh, Bakoyeva, senior journalist at Radio Free the Liberties Tajik Service, and Bruce Panier, a longtime Central Asia analyst. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free the Liberties Media Manager here in Washington. DC, and we are discussing the impact of Russia's war on Ukraine, on Central Asia. So the cause, the type of examples earlier we heard from all of you, what is causing this? Obviously, in, in the example that I gave earlier, was the Russian media being the source of information for this particular person, shaping up his opinion about Ukraine. So in your societies, the societies that you monitor, what is causing this, this sort of kind of divisions in opinion? Again, let's start with maybe with, with Asel then. Uh, in, in Bishkek? It's a difficult question, specifically because we lack data. We mm. don't have surveys. So what we're doing here is um, speculating based on uh, our observations of uh, social right, yeah. media and also um, simply observing the protests because it's easier to observe. Um, it's a smaller group of population. But of course, protests, uh, physical protests, do not reflect their kind of their societal level, right? So, um, Right now, we just uh, can only guess about yeah. uh, the reasons and the, the lines of divisions. I think um, when um, there was uh, this last survey conducted by Central Asian Barometer between 2017 and 2019, it showed really that Central Asian societies and regimes are predominantly pro-Russian. The highest level of uh, support shown in Kyrgyzstan equal to 93%. Uh, that was followed by Kazakhstan. Back then, it, uh, the support was uh, 86%, still high. And that despite, actually, uh, annexation of Crimea. Hmm. What is interesting is that uh, Laruel and colleagues, based on the survey and focus groups conducted in Kazakhstan, they say that the majority of Kazakhstanis considered that Crimea was Russian, hmm. and it was natural for Russia to take it. But interestingly, they did not view Russia as a threat, despite this annexation of Crimea. And they didn't uh, see the Russian um, ethnic uh, minority in Kazakhstan as a fifth column, something that Asiel uh, Tutunlu mentioned earlier. So we see that already that basically this uh, Russian war in Ukraine, which is lasting, of course, much longer than now, has already prepared certain bases for uh, our societies to basically follow the Russian line, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, the Crimean example shows that, that already back then, people here in Central Asia rather supported Putin for that. 
Of course, I'm not saying that Crimea is similar to what is happening now to Ukraine. Crimea was a peaceful annexation, right? Mm -hmm. Well, not a military intervention to the extent it is going on now. So, and usually violence and deaths and war is much more averse to people. But I would say that there is some sort of a continuation of um, a pro-Russian support, which is already longer. And uh, that's why it affects how people see their current round of aggression against Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Russian media, you know, we are talking about the influence of Russian media in the context of this war. You know, Asel Tutumlo, you know, when you listen to Russian speakers, Russian politicians talk about this, it, it seems a little bit closer to home in Kazakhstan, like we have seen a number of flash moves. Uh, number of, uh, you know, kind of signposts in Kazakhstan saying we don't want to be next. So obviously there is a clear signal to what they are really trying to indicate there. So it seems to be real close to home. And also Russian media is influential in Kazakhstan as well. So in your country, Asel Tutumla, how uh, Russian media is kind of factoring in the way people discuss this issue? Well, Russian media is uh, relatively strong, particularly, again, for the older generation of Hmm. people. And it also, uh, I mean, at times it goes and mobilizes people outside of just that older generation, because now you can create your own social media, so to say, cocoon and live in the world of that. So in terms of the causes, I think the the reason why we have such a strong social divide, it's because of very different understanding of history. I mean, the Russian media basically evokes this idea of moral responsibility of the former Soviet people to stand against the oppression and, as I said, Nazism, uh, Mm -hmm. genocide Mm -hmm. um, of the Russian speakers, so to say. And uh, whereas on the other hand, you also have a very different interpretation of history uh, and therefore what is happening in Ukraine, where there is a very real fear that the same type of uh, experience can happen with any Central Asian state. Mm. And we are absolutely not protected by anyone. Uh, What's even worse, uh, if Ukraine at least is relatively geographically close to Europe, and so it has the kind of a voice of gravity, we in Central Asia may not even have that particular standing. And these people who are against the uh, Russian aggression, uh, they stand not only against this kind of atrocious acts of war and the kind of against two, so to say, uh, brotherly nations, but they want to have a country with a choice, right? They want to have a country where they can choose the way they can live in the future, whether or not they want to join different organizations, have independent foreign policy, independent trade, so to say. I think that's what's at stake for them. And I think that's why the the look into the past versus the look into the future is what's what's really informing the fears of this intergenerational um, the way I see it as intergenerational conflict. Mm, yeah, I guess I guess you're right. You know, generational difference is huge on anything about about the past in Central Asia. I guess you touched on this a bit earlier, Asel. I thought it might be useful uh, to spell out the difference of opinion in this context, like in the in the context of uh, Russia's war on Ukraine on generational lines. Um, the war on Ukraine is obviously a huge event, but you know, uh, even even on a day to day matters, you often come across with different interpretation of. Soviet times between elderly and younger population who have not necessarily seen the Soviet Union 
Union up close with all the challenges attached to it? Well, the the idea is that you still have older people who would come and teach, so to say, mm. Soviet history mm. uh, that looked at Central Asia as a kind of a, a periphery that mm. had to be what's it called civilized mm. right and so you still have these people who would come and say that you guys were nomadic you didn't have any hygiene mm. you were you didn't even have the alphabet and we gave you these things mm. so there is this type of attitude that we ethnic uh, russians or non-kazakhs created mm. the statehood for you and you are now basically giving us this type of uh, spiel where you're not grateful mm. for all the goodness that we have brought mm. and on the other hand you have these people who have a very different interpretation of history who associate uh, Soviet Union with repressions, famine, and uh, uh, all kinds of violence, mm-hmm. not only physical violence, but also against identity, culture, language, and yeah. so on. So in that sense, the rift that we see with Ukraine, I think, goes much deeper mm. uh, and, and on many different levels because we are coming from very different, so to say, and frequently incompatible paradigms, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> if we yeah. can use that language. I find myself in a really hot seat here. You know, it's such an important conversation, but it's also a huge challenge uh, to discuss this without access to specific data in this or the other way. I mean, uh, we are just kind of trying to read tea leaves based on the anecdotal examples that we see here and there on social media or people talk and or the accidents. As earlier, uh, Asil was talking about in Bishkek, the accident with the driver not uh, letting a passenger uh, uh, come on board because of their flashing views on what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And also, on the same note, maybe Hiroman and Bruce, anyone, uh, please jump in. One is obviously the influence of Russian media in, in terms of shaping up the people's opinion about certain things or certain direction. But the, the other thing is the national media, uh, I guess, is in part to blame here because because of their inability to call what it is. Maybe, Hiroman, let's start with you. How the national media has been treating this? As as I told before, there are not um, a lot independent media in Tajikistan, mm-hmm. but I um, I could share my uh, personal uh, view when I observe the discussions uh, of this war uh, between the journalist community in Tajikistan or some editor in chiefs. And from one point of view, I'm really glad that there are people with uh, open-minded people who maybe have some roots in Russia or even in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and doesn't matter for. for me it's personal doesn't matter for me it's really important their uh, personal position mm. and also their professional position toward mm. this situation mm. and how to cover it. For example, we have a very uh, leading uh, paper, Asia Plus, and I see that how they are covering it from from my point of view mm. in a very professional way. Mm. They call the war war and they call the aggression as aggression, and uh, they don't uh, they don't use the synonyms or the or the uh, some Russian censorship mm. rules to say what they want Mm. and uh, regarding the media i wanted to say it earlier uh, that uh, yes it is the main factor of Mm. the brainwashing of our people in Mm. our regions because the role of russian media traditionally is uh, dominant in our territories and it it has a long tradition of soviet times then it comes during the independence so uh, the role of media i think is key in uh, constructing of this mm. mentality mm. i could use uh, maybe this word as they could blind people and uh, they they make people uh, to go under their direction of mm. thinking mm. 
and what uh, the, the this is for me is very dramatic interesting and especially i'm sorry especially uh, in a situation where in tajikistan mm. the internet is um, stricted and uh, very expensive the people really mm. have very small part of people have access to free internet and free media mm-hmm. yeah you know no surprise right on one hand the influence of russian media where according to them russia is doing all this to save ukrainians uh, from what the russian authorities call gang of uh, drug addicts as put calls it and then they ban any reference to why Russia is there actually and what it is doing and then uh, they bombard Central Asians as well as Russians with this type of in- information and local authorities there uh, in our region do nothing to provide a space for any open dialogue uh, contrary in some cases they restrict all the discussions about it in the same way like Russia tries to do in that case what the majority of people left with is the Russian word and opinions are shaped through that lens so what else you expect you know it's really sad so i see uh, both ourselves are raising their hands i guess in in response to what uh, we just heard from kiroman so let's go with the asal in bishkek first please be brief and we really need to wrap up the conversation very soon okay um, i sometimes have impression that mm. uh, media doesn't play any more role for those people who have made their minds. Mm. You know, there are really those uh, like uh, hard shells who kind of, they know their own truths mm. and um, it doesn't matter how many other alternative mass medias exist mm. there, it doesn't matter how many different uh, sources of news exist out mm. there, they just uh, follow their own chosen path and they believe in uh, what they believe. And uh, there it's very interesting because I, I conducted two interviews with such people mm. and um, I had impression that in Kyrgyzstan and that really contrasts Kazakhstan that uh, some people are stuck in the Soviet Union and what mm. I mean by that is that they didn't do well through the 90s. Mm. The 90s and the, in, the following independence were painful for them. They lost their status, they lost their stability, their employment, their whatever, mm. right? the capital status, the cultural capital and so on and so forth. Right. And for them, in the independence didn't bring anything good. Whereas in Kazakhstan, I think people cherish independence because a lot of people benefited from uh, uh, independence, from the oil-based economy. Mm. There, there was a distribution of benefits, mm, nevertheless, mm, mm, mm. under the Nazarbayev. So a lot of people, I think, cherish independence for that purpose, and um, they would be against any scenario of annexation of Kazakhstan. Whereas for Kyrgyzstan, you know, these ideas, even politicians have been flirting with these ideas of a confederation with Russia. That was officially. Mm. Uh, for example, the Kulov, Felix Kulov, who was, uh, together with Bakiev in tandem hmm. in 2005-2006, he suggested officially that we run a referendum to uh, confederate with Russia. And uh, these ideas have been there in 90s and 2000, mm-hmm. and a lot of people in Kyrgyzstan believe that they would be better off within the Russian Federation. Mm-hmm. So there are here also very different dynamics. And I think uh, this is uh, valid 
independently what kind of media they consume. Interesting. And, you know, Kyrgyzstan is a, as a society is a dynamic country. And we, I guess, uh, Kyrgyzstan was the first place where we started seeing some sort of people coming out to the streets and protesting, which could be called in favor of Ukraine. Yeah. So it's a very interesting dynamic there. We are asal. I just need to jump in yeah. and uh, agree with the fact that it's very difficult to actually uh, change people, mm. yeah. <laughs> people's minds mm. if they made, made, made it up. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like since you're in D.C., uh, it's almost like uh, talking to people somewhere in Midwest of the United States, the Trump supporters, who are just invincible. You know, it's it's very difficult to get to them. And so mm. we have, I think, not, we noticed a very similar situation there. But I also am very grateful for you raising the question of national media. Is it to blame? And I think in that sense, we need to also bring back this, this issue of authoritarian context, mm. uh, where that media operates. Because yeah. our media is very cautious and very kind of reactive. It's on such a leash mm. that it has to look behind and see if the government is going to approve it or not. So they cannot really say a lot of things. Mm. And uh, as a result of that, we no longer have the uh, public intellectuals who may actually lead and uh, shape public opinion. In that sense, it is a very big loss. And we have seen very similar uh, type of gap that existed in January events, where um, the, the larger, the protest was largely leaderless. And, and I think this particular problem continues in many different facets, including the mass media as well. Yeah. On the local media, as we were talking about this earlier last week, journalists in Uzbekistan was getting in tr- into trouble for calling it what it is. So it's a very, very interesting dynamic in kind of a different aspects of this in Central Asia. Bruce, leading the conversation towards the conclusion here, what I was thinking about is, yes, the, the polarization. I mean, again, we don't have exact facts and figures, what group of people we are talking about here. But there is a division that's very clear uh, in support and against the war in Central Asia. I mean, what I'm talking about is, especially in the context of the examples that we heard earlier from uh, Asil in, in Bishkek, I mean, how challenging can it get? Going forward, you know, the first thing I would point out is that I'm sure there's a polarization in society, but all over the in societies yeah. in, in all countries of the world. I mean, anytime you have a war or something, you're you're going to have people who are on for against whatever mm-hmm. um, you know that exists in all these different in the same countries. You know, so that's something is natural, unfortunately, yeah. or for I don't know, or just natural. There's no no getting around it. You know, the problem with to feed into what you were talking about just a minute ago about you know, local media and stuff, the, the problem is that there's not a big discussion going on in local media about mm-hmm. this because the governments, as we heard, don't want mm-hmm. this to be brought up. Like, it's a shame that they report on mm-hmm. evacuation flights for their citizens, but I don't see the natural follow-up reports, which would be interview these people who were just taken out of there and, you know, from Ukraine mm-hmm. and uh, and usually had to flee to Poland and ask them about their experiences. I'm, I'm sure that there's, there's probably some out there, but I, I don't remember seeing any of those from local media. And that would be a natural in, in Western countries anyway. You were just there. What did you see? What did you, you know? What was going on? But I don't even see that because it's that sensitive of a question. Um, so unfortunately, what you're left with, if local media is not going to allow their own local intellectuals and politicians to really debate this in public, then you're stuck with things like Russian media, right? Yeah. And, and people, while people might understand that you don't, you can't trust everything that you hear from Russian media, which is something held over from the Soviet era, you know, the option of whose media do you trust then, right? Because, you know, I've been out there a lot. And of course, I was working for what was essentially a Western media organization. And and people thought that everything I did and everything that Radio for Europe did had an agenda behind it, Mm -hmm. right? So it was, 
it was a question of whose media do you distrust the most, you know, the Russian media or Western media uh-huh. at that point. You know, sadly, my, my personal experience was that people were willing to trust Russian media before they would trust certainly American media. You know, so like I said, I, I feel sorry for the people. There's these divisions that are natural that are happening, yeah. but there's no s- local domestic stimulation of conversation or debate that would help them to form better opinions on what they want. So you're really left with shop talk and, mm-hmm. and um, restaurant conversations yeah. and stuff, I suppose, because there's such a lack of, of official information about what's going on or, yeah. or, like I said, any serious debate about it. Yeah. Just a follow-up question to you. And also, uh, if Hiroman wants to add a word or two on that, Welcome, Roman. Also, uh, so going forward, kind of uh, question is, uh, you know, where is this discussion going now in in Central Asia? Obviously, we don't know where Putin is going with Ukraine, but in Central Asia, when you look at locally, in the context of this polarization, where is this discussion going there locally? You know, yeah. I think one of the things that'll be interesting, usually, have where your eyes will be, is mm. is as the economies start to come mm. under more pressure, mm. Mm. you know, and as the pain is expanded in these regions because of the sanctions on Russia. Russia, then what what effect will that have on people's views of Russia? And, and this is another one where I've heard, you know, I've seen both sides of this and, and heard the arguments that some people will be angry with Russia that, you know, and their own governments and their own people to mm. some extent that they're so tied to Russia that, mm. that they let themselves in for this. But others will blame the West and Western sanctions for causing all their pain. Mm. You know, but but we know that some Russians are coming to Central Asia to escape you know, at least temporarily, mm. being in Russia, their opinions when they speak with local people might help formulate greater public opinion, I suppose, as it goes on. You know, and maybe people will just want to naturally will be more curious about what is the cause of all this stuff and look for their own information from other sources, on the Internet or something, and, and that will help them formulate even slightly different opinions than the ones we see now. Right, right. Hiraman, anything to add in that? I mean, you know, as a journalist, where you will be looking at in terms of where is this discussion going in your country or overall in Central Asia? Yes, it's really hard to say what what would be after two or three days. But Mm. for now, I could say the one very uh, important point that, Mm. for example, in Tajikistan, as I see in other countries of Central Asia, no any uh, member of the Rahman government, uh, not himself, Mm. uh, neither is his parliament members, no any politician except one guy openly sh- uh, shared their opinions mm. uh, regarding the this war. Mm. You could think that there is nothing happening from the Tajik political establishment point of view, yeah. but the economic impact we see already now mm. that the uh, dollar has raised the yeah. prices on sky and the people mostly thinking now about that issues. Mm. And uh, uh, this is something that could somehow make people think about this war, but it wouldn't be direct discussion of the war, but it would be discussion of their uh, livelihood and uh, everything that uh, related to mm. their lives. Mm. So, so the situation is like that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, uh, I think Asel in Nicosia already left. Um, so Asel in Bishkek. I mean, what I was wondering about. I mean, just your final thought here. Khuraman brings up some interesting idea there, like, you know, now people are not fully seeing the 
true implications of the Russian war on Ukraine in terms of the effect to day-to-day life, uh, you know, bread and butter issues. Like it's soon economic sanctions when it is going to squeeze Russian economy, it's going to have a direct impact on day-to-day life of people in Central Asia, which I just wondered, I mean, I know we have to conclude the conversation. I just wondered whether that is going to, in this or the other way, influence people's thinking about the logic behind Russia's war on Ukraine? Yeah, that's a very good question. And of course, I'm just speculating here because it's such a dynamic situation and we don't know how people will, um, you know, what's going to be their attitude Hmm. tomorrow. The one way of thinking probably would be that, uh, yes, Russian economy will go down. That's obvious and it's going to come soon. Um, And uh, some migrants are already laid off from work because all those companies like McDonald's Mm. where migrants used to work, they are closed. So our societies and economies will feel the impact very soon. And, but I'm afraid that uh, Central Asians might actually blame that uh, situation not to the Russian leadership and what it's done in Ukraine, but to the West. So, and of course, they will probably follow the, the Russian propaganda in that regard, that uh, basically it's uh, the West who caused this havoc and the, the West to blame, because it's the West who imposed the sanctions. And the migrants will suffer together with the Russian society, and uh, but will probably find ways how to, you know, um, change jobs, uh, employment, go to different sectors. Might also uh, diversify their migration routes. So, um, I, I, kind of the social economic grievances, I don't think that they automatically will uh, transform into negative opinions towards Russia. Hmm. You know, that again brings us to the point where the importance of the open media, I mean, the need for this thing to be discussed openly in, in Central Asia, which which lacks, obviously. So I guess we will, uh, yeah, we will g- keep our eyes on this. But here we have to conclude the conversation. Thank you very much, Dr. Asal Dulat Keldiba, Senior Lecturer at the OC Academy in Bishkek, Dr. Asal Tutumlo, Lecturer at the Department of International Relations and Political Science at the Near East University. Khiroman Bakoyeva, senior journalist at Radio Free Republic Liberty's Tajik service in Bruce Panier, a longtime Central Asia analyst. And thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. And this is from me, Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis, Radio Free Republic Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye bye.